December 15th, the Times of Israel hosted an event with prominent legal scholars who discussed the incoming coalition's plans to curtail the high court's power and explored its likely far-reaching impact on Israeli democracy and society. Now you can hear what was said at this event, as well as additional interviews in our limited podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin. We drew together eight thinkers from diverse walks of life who expressed their extremely varied opinions. Please check out this first episode with Professor Yaniv Roznai and subscribe to Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin, wherever you get your podcasts. Is Israeli democracy in danger? As judicial reform is discussed in the Knesset's halls, we at the Times of Israel are taking a journey, probing into what are the country's current checks and balances and what could be the consequences of potential new legislation. Are we headed for a tyranny of the majority or rather implementing much needed legislation? Join us as we explore these issues with top Israeli legal experts in this limited Times of Israel podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin? Hello, everyone. This is Amanda Borshaldan hosting this first episode in which I speak with Professor Yaniv Roznai. In our wide-ranging conversation, Yaniv lays out his concerns over a potential override clause as proposed by religious Zionism head Bezalel Smotrich. Yaniv is vice dean of the Harry Radziner Law School and co-director of the Rubenstein Center for Constitutional Challenges at Reichman University. Yaniv's scholarship focuses on comparative constitutional law and constitutional theory. We spoke just prior to a Times of Israel live-streamed event on December 15th on the topic of judicial reform. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes, which will include remarks from other speakers who have very different points of view. Let's hear from Yaniv. Yaniv, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Such a pleasure. First of all, let's begin with how would you define democracy? That's You started with the easy question, I see. <laughs> of course. Well, democracy, of course, first and foremost, is rule of the people, majority rule. But that is only one condition for democracy to exist. We need, of course, decision-making of the majority, but also democracy includes various values and principles, such as fundamental rights, separation of powers, rule of law, all these together comprise democracy. So it's the rule of the people, but there are various ways for the people to exercise their sovereignty in a way. So when democracy was, shall we say, invented, which was by the Greeks, correct? Did they have checks and balances way back then? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Well, you know, even the Roman dictator that was elected during times of emergency and wars in ancient Rome, even the dictator did not have absolute powers, but he could not touch upon the fundamentals of the regime. And this, of course, leads us to some of the more current questions, whether our own politicians should have absolute powers or not. Because we all know that absolute power corrupts absolutely, as the saying goes. But let's talk about what is a successful democracy, contemporary democracy in your eyes? I think it's a very challenging question because no democracy is perfect. And we have very different systems around the world. And and I think that countries are still debating among themselves whether the system is good or not, and always trying to improve. 
And likewise, I think in Israel, we have tried, you know, during the early and mid 1990s to have some kind of progress, to be like all the other new democracies in Europe, to try to move towards a, what we call a, a liberal constitutional democracy. And we're still debating this idea among ourselves, whether it is good to give the court too much power or not, whether the politicians should have too much powers. I think that a good democratic system, to my mind, is one that on the one hand manages to express popular will in a, in, in a good way, and on the other hand manages to diffuse political power so it would not be concentrated in the hands of one body. Uh, I think that would make a, a proper balance. For a democracy. Now, Israel doesn't have the tripartite system that, for example, the United States has. It's mostly two different institutions that seem to somehow try to correct each other's oversteps. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect account because unlike the US or other presidential systems, our parliamentary system is basically that the government, which is the executive, actually controls the legislature, the parliament. But it is more than that, actually. Because the ones who control the parliament, the Knesset, are actually five, maybe six politicians who are the leaders of the coalition, and they control the coalition through coalition discipline, which basically means that we have five or six politicians that control our entire legislator. So that's, I think, very different from the U.S. understanding of checks and balances. And really, within these five or six politicians, there's pretty much usually one or two who's really pulling the strings, wouldn't you say? Yes, but on the other hand, it was also enough in the past to have one politician among this uh, small group that was able to block things. Uh, had some kind of a veto power because you need the agreement of all the members of the coalition. But what do you do if the coalition is homogeneous? Then no one would block Uh, their power, they will be able to do anything they want. That's, I think, the main problem in our system. Okay, we're dancing around the issue of the override clause, which we don't actually have written out any kind of firm idea of what is actually going to be proposed. But we have some ideas from what has been floated through different campaign issues and things like that. So what is the campaign uh, issue that uh, MK Betsalo Smotrich proposed? So basically, the proposal is one that is supposed to allow... I'm not sure how much the audience is aware of the current constitutional uh, context. So nowadays, even though Israel doesn't have a formal rigid constitution, there are basic laws which comprise our constitutional order. They function as a constitution in a way. And we have a court that exercises strong form of judicial review. So if there's an ordinary law of the Knesset that violates these basic laws... The court can then invalidate these laws and declare them unconstitutional. Now, the override basically is a mechanism that's supposed to give the Knesset the power to override these constitutional limitations. So if the Knesset would want to enact a law that is prima facie unconstitutional, if they have enough votes, and now we're talking probably of a majority of 61 Knesset members out of 120, which any coalition has, then they will be able to enact a law, even though it is unconstitutional, meaning that it violates rights in a disproportionate manner or not for a proper purpose. That's the basic idea that is now being uh, promoted. But times change, people change, the needs of society change. Shouldn't there be a mechanism to change the basic laws as well? 
That is a good question because the peculiar nature of Israel and Israeli constitutional order is such that the basic laws themselves, unlike the US Constitution, are not entrenched. So the various basic laws themselves can be very easily amended. Basic law, human dignity, for example, which is our Bill of Rights, in a way, that is the basic law that protects the right to life and privacy and, dignis- and dignity and liberty, etc. It can be amended by a simple majority. Two versus one. Ten versus nine. Now, I think this is a very tricky point here because then people say, well, why are you so worried about the override with 61 if anyway, any simple majority can change basically human dignity? It doesn't, doesn't make sense. And my answer to that is that for the last 30 years, since its enactment in 1992, we've heard politicians criticize basically human dignity, but they never touched it. They never abolished it. Now, I think the reasons are quite clear. Just imagine how we would look if we would abolish our Bill of Rights, right? And not to mention that some politicians are quite happy with the, the, the constitutional revolution. Uh, and others, I think, are quite... They, they live comfortably with the idea that there is the court that can do the, the tough job uh, and invalidate laws that are problematic. And here comes the problem with the override. Because what the override would actually allow us is to portray Israel as if everything is normal, we're a perfectly liberal democracy, we still have this Bill of Rights in the books. And when we send reports, when Israel sends reports to the UN and into the various human rights committees, we will write we still have basically human dignity. But then again, the coalition will be able to get rid of its limitations whenever it would be convenient. And that is the big problem with the override, that it would legitimize basically emptying basic human dignity out of content. Okay, so that's for right now. That's the coalition that is meant to be sworn in soon. Does this mean that this is a forever problem, or is this something that is temporary with this particular government? I think it's a problem that will last forever. It's a one-way street. Not procedurally speaking. Procedurally, of course, I think any future government will be able to change the override and abolish it. The problem is, because the override is a mechanism that gives the government absolute powers, no government, neither from the right nor from the left, will ever give up such a mechanism that gives it absolute powers. And we've, we've, we, have, we have some lessons from COVID experience and the law that gives very uh, wide authorities to the government, and, you know, even post-COVID, you know, we haven't abolished that law. Uh, and I, I suspect that no government will get rid of the override. Okay, so let's talk very specific examples. You brought up the COVID law, and I assume you're talking about phone tracking. Is that what you're thinking of? Not necessarily, no. I'm talking about the big authorities law that actually provided the government with extremely wide authorities uh, to limit people's movement, etc. It's not just the... Uh, not just to listen to people's uh, phones, etc. No. Okay, but phone tracking is one thing. Let's talk about some other specific things that could be affected. As we all know, one of the incoming partners in the coalition is uh, Avi Maoz, the head of a one-man party, Noam, who is very, very uh, on the record as being homophobic and things of that nature. How could the override law serve as a tool for somebody like him? I think that the LGBT rights is one major issue major issue really that uh, that will suffer from this override just imagine so nowadays a gay couple can go to let's say canada and get married there and then once they return to israel 
they can be registered as a married couple, thanks to the court, to the court's decision. Now imagine that there is now a law that would say that Israel will not recognize any marriage conducted outside of Israel, or for example, not according to uh, Jewish law. It would be enough for them to have 61 fingers, and they have, to have such a law, and then in a second, the right to family, right to dignity, the right to equality, would be quite easily undermined. So this is just one example, but I suspect that we will see many others, particularly when it comes to women's rights, gay rights, because I suspect that some parties in the coalition, the coming coalition, will try to push for as many law and religion laws as possible. And that is a big problem to my mind. Okay, so let's take another specific example. Reform conversion. It is something that has incrementally been processed here in Israel through the courts. Uh, initially, uh, those who converted reform abroad were not recognized for Israeli citizenship purposes. They won that, right? Recently, those who are converted in Israel are also recognized as citizens. What's going to happen here? Likewise, I think that we will probably see attempts to limit the ability of, of conversion to Judaism. Uh, and and again, all these advancements took place thanks to the court. And and if when you have such a coalition, you never know. I, I think that reality will exceed our, our imaginations, I, I suspect. Uh, the, the question that we need to ask ourselves, whether it is a good thing to give the coalition, and, and, and for this moment, it doesn't really matter if it's a right-wing or a left-wing coalition, any politician. The question is whether it's a good thing to give any politicians absolute powers. And I think the answer should be a strong no, no. In liberal democracy, no one has absolute powers. We have our own rights, minimal rights, core rights that not majority, no, no matter even if it's 70 or 80 Knesset members, should be able to undermine. And unfortunately, the override clause would do precisely that. Okay, so you already mentioned 70 or 80 Chavrei uh, Knesset, members of Knesset. This has been floated by current uh, prime minister, I guess we should still call him Yair Lapid, having such a majority. It's not 61, it's 70 or 80, which in 120 uh, MKs with Arab parties, etc., etc., that's kind of pretty major. Would you be against that kind of uh, majority? So, in an ideal world, if I have to design our constitution out of scratch, I would oppose the override clause. But because we don't live in an ideal world, but we live in the messy real world, I understand the need for compromises. If the new coalition would promote a new basic law legislation, that is one of the main chapters that is still needed in our constitutional project, and this basic law, once and for all, will entrench the status of the basic laws. In other words, it would make the it would make them more difficult uh, for amendment, and it would make this distinction between everyday politics and constitutional politics. And secondly, it would once and for all entrench the authority of the court to conduct judicial review. Then I'm very much open to discuss the possibility of an override, but the design of the override is crucial because there are fifty shades of design for an override. One point is, of course, the majority. It has to be a, a high enough majority to make sure that not every coalition can abuse uh, this, this mechanism, and preferably with some kind of a opposition element in it. Uh, and secondly, the override must be only after a judicial decision 
and not before. In other words, we don't want an override that would allow the Knesset members to preemptively, already during the legislative process, to say, oh, okay, you, this law is prima facie unconstitutional. We will just write in the law, notwithstanding, basically, immediately, we still want this law. I think that if we go towards a, an override, it has to be only after the court has dealt with the issue and has issued uh, a reasoned ruling why this law is unconstitutional. And then the ball comes back to the Knesset. They can sit, read the judgment. Who knows? Maybe they'll be convinced. Maybe they will decide to change some of the provisions uh, and mitigate the, the infringement of rights. If after reading the reasoned judgment, they would want to still reenact it as an override, that's a different story. And the third element that is crucial is whether we want the override or the ability to override all laws, regardless of how basic they are, the right to vote, the right to life, equality, privacy, dignity. What about uh, the ability or the right to, uh, to justice, to, to stand before, to access to court? Uh, so if you look at the Canadian example, for example, some rights are out of the package. It is true that in Canada there is an override mechanism, but it doesn't apply on all fundamental rights. Some rights are out of the package. And we can have an, some kind of an analog from emergency. We've mentioned emergency regimes. In all the emergency regimes, in world constitutions, and also in the international conventions, even in times of emergency, when it's quite clear that you can undermine and, and violate fundamental rights, there are still some rights that are non-derogable. And I think the same should be applied uh, for the override mechanism. Okay. This government, assuming everything goes through all the bills that they're trying to pass, will be sworn in very soon. You are making a lot of noise against this override clause or, or the idea of it. You're on Twitter, you're on social media, you're doing a lot to fight against it. But can it actually be fought against at this point with the government coming in? Well, I hope so. Otherwise, I, uh, <laughs> I've been wasting my time. But we need to understand, the people of Israel do not want the override. All the recent surveys conducted, for example, by Channel 12, by Reichman University, by the Israeli Democracy Institute, all of them show that the vast majority of Israelis do not want the override clause, specifically not with 61 Knesset members, even within the Likud voters. They don't want it. So I really hope that our politicians will understand that first, the people do not want it. Second, there is no need for it. I don't think there is any real challenge of governance in Israel. And if there is a problem to govern, it is not because of the court. It's because of our governance system and our politicians. Do not blame the court. And I think that our efforts to convince the public, but also the politicians, perhaps had some kind of an influence. I've already heard voices from the coalition saying, well, maybe we should postpone the override, not enact it right away. It works. And I really, I have faith in the politicians that they want to make good things for Israel. The override clause is not one of them. It will only make things worse. And it would not solve the tension between the branches. We need to understand it. So I proposed an alternative. Let's limit the ability of court to strike down legislation only to the Supreme Court. Now every court can do it. Only to the Supreme Court in an extended bench of, let's say, at least nine judges, perhaps more. And we should require a special majority or a super majority of, of judges uh, among this extended bench to invalidate laws. 
This, I think, is a better solution that would solve the tensions and it would make sure that if there is a law that we are not sure whether the violation is proportional or not, if there's a slim majority of five versus four, then the court should tell the politicians, you know what? You are right. We are now restrained. We will not invalidate the law. And that would be the end of it. I think that is a much better solution than the override. So what you're proposing is more internal checks within the court, which may slow things down a bit, but it will make things a lot more safe for Israelis, a lot more equal for Israelis, potentially, and it'll give Israelis another channel to maintain their civil rights. Exactly. It would, on the one hand, it would respect the politicians. And on the other hand, it would make sure that in cases of really extreme and disproportionate violation of core rights, the court can still interfere. So I think it makes a very good balance. And this is what we need. We don't need the override. Yaniv, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this piece of a discussion hosted by the Times of Israel delving into all sides of the looming High Court Override Clause proposal. A thanks to producer Gilad Brownstein and to TOI's own Mick Weinstein. Shalom. Shalom.